Welcome to another edition of Essential ESG, a podcast coming to you from the lands of the Gadigal and the Wurundjeri peoples. My name is Phoebe Winpope and I'm the Head of Responsible Business and ESG at Cause Chambers Westgarth and today I'm talking to Joshua Aird, a Senior Associate with Cause Commercial Litigation Practice Group and also in our Responsible Business and ESG team. Josh is an experienced litigator with a practice covering investigations, complex commercial disputes and risk advisory, but he has a particular focus on ESG risk and mitigation, including modern slavery, international human rights, anti-bribery and corruption sanctions, and issues relating to First Nations peoples. Josh is a member of the Gilbert and Tobin Centre for Public Law and UNSW, and on top of his very busy legal practice, he's currently undertaking his PhD in law with a focus on human rights. Good morning, Josh. Welcome to Essential ESG. Thanks, Phoebe. It's great to be on the podcast. Um, Josh, we've seen in the media in recent weeks a number of high-profile cases where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have sought to block developments and major projects on traditional lands. Many of the rights of First Nations peoples are expressed in the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Can you tell us a little bit about that declaration? So the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP as it's known, was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly on the 13th of September 2007. So it's just celebrated its 15th anniversary. And it was really a culmination of decades' work uh, and is considered best practice in the realisation of Indigenous rights. It's the authoritative international standard that informs the way governments across the globe should engage with and protect the rights of Indigenous peoples. For instance, in Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Social Justice Commissioner June Oscar said that the declaration is the most comprehensive tool we have available to advance and protect the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I use the declaration as my guide as Social Justice Commissioner. And why do you think UNDRIP is so significant? UNDRIP is particularly significant because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were involved in its drafting. So what are the key principles of UNDRIP? According to the Australian Human Rights Commission, UNDRIP establishes a universal framework of minimum standards for the survival, dignity and well-being of Indigenous peoples around the world. It's important to recognise, though, that it doesn't create rights but elaborates on existing human rights, standards and fundamental freedoms as they apply to Indigenous peoples. The declaration covers all areas of human rights as they relate to Indigenous peoples as articulated in other conventions such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. UNDRIP really guides the implementation of those rights. We generally understand there to be four key principles of UNDRIP. Self-determination, participation in decision-making, respect for and protection of culture, and equality and non-discrimination. I think those are really interesting, Josh, and particularly that that idea that the rights that are in UNDRIP, we often hear people talking about UNDRIP and saying it's not really international law, it's a declaration, it doesn't really apply, and to try and diminish the status of UNDRIP in that context. So that link between the existing conventions and the expression of those rights as part of those conventions, and particularly around self-determination, is particularly important, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Phoebe. And 
The application of the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights really pushes against that narrative. The Guiding Principles recognise that there are United Nations instruments that have elaborated on rights as they apply to particularly vulnerable groups, such as women, national, ethnic or religious minorities, and Indigenous peoples. And when you're considering Indigenous peoples, you really need to consider UNDRIP. What do you think is the most important principle that UNDRIP expresses, particularly in relation to, I suppose, businesses operating in Australia or around the world? Because uh, it's often it often comes into play, doesn't it, in that relationship when businesses are operating on traditional lands of Indigenous people? Yeah, it does. And, and whenever you're considering land or land-connected peoples, the most important consideration is the principle of free, prior and informed consent, or FPIC. And that principle really underpins one of those four foundational elements of UNDRIP that I discussed before, and self-determination. So it's being recognised by the United Nations that it's impossible to realise the right to self-determination without considering the principle of FPIC. Because that gives people the right to actually decide how and to consider how their own you know, property and resources are, are being used. Is that right? That's exactly right. It involves Indigenous peoples in the decision-making about their culture, about their land... Uh, and about their future, really. So FPIC is both procedural in the sense that it is a way in which businesses can engage with Indigenous communities, but it's also substantive in that there are situations where if FPIC is required. You, you must obtain the consent of Indigenous peoples in certain situations. Great. And I know we're going to discuss this in a whole nother podcast because there's a lot to unpack around the FPIC piece. When we think about UNDRIP in Australia, Australia wasn't one of the first countries to or didn't initially sign on to UNDRIP, did they, along with some other countries? Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of history of UNDRIP in Australia and how that's been evolving? So Australia was one of only four countries to vote against UNDRIP in the General Assembly. Australia joined with Canada, the United States and New Zealand, predominantly over concerns about development projects, but also discrimination and a quasi-dual legal system uh, which UNDRIP would develop. But after uh, two years of further consideration, in 2009 Australia changed its vote and did endorse UNDRIP and have committed to the non-binding framework uh, to recognise and promote the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. There's a sense that it will also help uh, with reconciliation. I think it's interesting, this idea of the voice to parliament and that that idea of free, prior and informed consent and how they will inform each other going forwards. There's been a Senate inquiry, Josh, on UNDRIP. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because that's an ongoing... that started in with a former government, but it's still proceeding, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So there's been a couple of inquiries recently in the Australian Parliament that have focused on Indigenous rights, uh, UNDRIP, and ways that the Australian government can better recognise the rights of its First Nations peoples. So it started, obviously, with the events at Duke and Gorge and the Senate inquiry 
into what happened there. Uh, but it has led to a broader inquiry on the implementation of UNDRIP and whether or not UNDRIP should be embedded within Australia's domestic legal framework in order to give better protection to the rights of Indigenous peoples. Yeah, so the interesting thing about the destruction of Jugan Gorge was that while everybody was a little bit shocked by what had happened, or a lot shocked by what had happened, the, the parliamentary inquiry acknowledged that in spite of those enormous consequences that the destruction of the rock shelters had on First Nations communities, no laws were in fact broken, right? Because, And because this sort of seemingly glaring incongruity, the inquiry had recommended the need for a much more unified legal requirements across Australia and states and territories. And it'll be interesting to see how UNDRIP evolves and feeds into that thinking about how that can occur. Yeah, that's right. That's always the difficulty with these international instruments is they only really bite on the international stage. It takes governments' implementation into domestic law in order for them to have uh, and achieve real outcomes domestically. Australia's inquiry into uh, implementing UNDRIP in domestic law does follow that um, of Canada and Canada's recent commitment to legislate for UNDRIP. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, the Australian government adopts the recommendations of the committee. Well, we'll be watching this space very, very closely as we go forwards and I think it'll have lots of implications A, for the rights of Indigenous people in Australia, hopefully for the progression and progress in reconciliation with our First Nations peoples, and also a lot of implications, I think, for the way business and Australians operate and conduct activities on Indigenous lands around the country. So, Josh, thank you very much for that introduction to UNDRIP, and we're going to... um, we're going to have a further discussion on FPIC in another podcast. Thanks, Phoebe. Can't wait. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal or other advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Mm-hmm.